Rowan Vine, striker, Portsmouth, Brentford, Colchester, Luton, Birmingham. I could go on, but I'll just stop it there. So we'll start off at the very start. How did you get into football? Um, I'm from a big family. I'm, I'm born and grew up in Basingstoke and I'm from a big family. Um, got four brothers and a sister, three older brothers and my dad played, my dad played semi-pro. Probably could have been a pro, he was good enough, but it sort of chose a different path in terms of what he'd done for work and everything. So yeah, he was a really good player. Um, I think my mum sort of says I come out of the womb kicking the ball. So yeah, I, I've got my earliest memory is just football. Everything's football, football, football. I think I started probably training or trying to go training when I was three or four with my brothers that were a bit older. But um, yeah, just just that. And then I didn't play my first competitive game until I was about nine or ten. And within maybe six months, a year, I was already like, at the centre of excellence at Portsmouth. So it was a natural transition, really. Mm. And you're at Portsmouth until you were 23, so quite a while. Um, you made a few appearances along the way. And I assume, considering you were at the club until you were 23, they thought you might break into the team at some point. Was that the case? Yeah, it's a, it, it's a, it's a funny one, really, because I Stevie Claridge gave my debut just after my birthday and I and just signed a professional contract, like a four-year deal. Um, they thought highly of me. And the fans loved me and I, I loved it there. But I never really broke broke in. Um, Rixie came in, Graham Ricks came in the, the season after that and signed a few players. And I think I, I think I made about 17 or 18 appearances off the bench and I, I made like three starts. Um, but I started in Graham Ricks' last game and he got the sack. And then I started in one of Harry's first games. And then I went on loan three years in a row consecutively and it was the generation of there was like me Sam Parkin and a few others that he was at Chelsea we just went on loan I, I played 120 league games on loan and was still I think I signed at least one maybe two new deals while I was doing well on loan it was sort of that that's how it, and that kind of uh, structure that kind of way of doing it was really good because yeah, I wanted to play in the Championship or the Prem as it as it went with Portsmouth, but I knew that I couldn't sit around just training with the with the youth team and and, and the reserves. So, yeah, I went went to Brentford when I was nineteen and played forty, I think forty two league games, which is 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 really tough to to actually think people can do now because they protect the youngsters and they're not ready. Whereas we were just you're out, you're gone, and I didn't go back to Portsmouth. Say I was on loan at Brentford. I'd have played 42 games, played like yeah, loads of appearances, scored goals. I wouldn't have gone to Portsmouth once that year, like mm. to go back and see people. I'd have spoke to people on the phone maybe once or twice. It isn't even nowadays it's completely different. They they sort of guide your loan spell, they tell them how much they want you to play, and you know, sort of things like that. So I always felt like I was a Portsmouth player, but I never really felt involved. And it's a funny one because I played on loan at Luton. We won League One while I was on loan and they were desperate to sign me. So were a couple of other clubs in, in the Championship and in League One. 
but I still had designs about Portsmouth and that summer Harry Harry had left and gone to Southampton so everything was up in the air and I, I went down to um, to Portsmouth to talk to Peter Story who was the chief exec about a new deal um, Alan Perrin got the job at Portsmouth I was like he's a French guy not, not many people knew much about him but I trained a few times with him and was doing well so I went in the office thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to get a new deal and stay. Peter's story was sort of like, oh, um, we've had three offers. And I was like, okay. And he was like, yeah, like 250 grand. He said, that's, that's good money for you. I was like, oh, is it? I was like, oh, great. Was that what you think? And he, he, had, a, he had a genuine shock that they'd, they'd been offered some money for me. So he, I could see in his eye what he was thinking. And plus, this manager was sort of, he wasn't signing players because he was French. He was just doing with what he was told to do with the team. So I must have came out of the office just to, in, in principle agreed that I wanted a new deal and try and get in the team. And Peter Story said, yeah, that's, that's, that's great. We'll turn down the offers. Within about seven minutes, Mike Newell, the Luton manager, called me and said, oh, like, you coming up to sign then? And I went, no, I've just, I've just been in the office with Peter Story. I'm, um, I'm going to sign a new deal at Portsmouth. He said, well, no, I've just got off the phone to Peter Story. And I said, yeah, but I've just been in the office. And he said, like, how long ago? And I went, about 15 minutes. He went, no, I've literally got off the phone. They've accepted a bid of 250. You might as well come straight up. So I phoned my agent and he was like, look, they've accepted the uh, offer, even though he said that they're going to give you a new deal and you stay. If you go and speak to Luton and don't want to go, they'll give you the new deal. And I was like, well, I want to leave now because they clearly don't want me. So um, I just drove straight up to Luton and signed, signed for Luton. And it was sort of like... Uh, the deal they were offering me at Luton was a good deal for me financially and and to go and play in the champ, knowing that they were going to give me the number nine shirt and I was going to play. And then I remember like I signed and was in the hotel at Luton and my mum phoned me and was just like, have you signed? I said, yeah, yeah. And it was just like, yeah, I've been there since I was 10. So like you say, 12, 13 years, but it was never, it was, wasn't that wrenching to leave. You know, I love the Portsmouth fans. Mm. I think they're the best fans pound for pound in the country. Um, but, my philosophy was that I needed to play and I was so used to playing. I didn't feel like a Portsmouth player, if, it, if that makes sense. So I was happy to just cut the ties. And, you know, and then we went on and we were successful at Luton. So I think it was a, it was a, it was a good decision. Um, looking back, yeah, maybe I wish I'd have stayed and had another go at, at Portsmouth because I did love the club. But I, I just made the decision what was in front of me and it was, it was best to go, really. Yeah, it seemed like you made the right decision in the end because you said in past interviews that Luton was the best time of your career. It started off on loan, as you mentioned, uh, when you helped them get promoted and you were even being called the king of assists in the local newspaper. Uh, would you say that was a key part of your game? Yeah, um, it's always been a part of my game, like growing up. Um, and like I try to tell when I'm coaching young lads and speak to my boys who, who play up front as well, I try to, I try to tell them that... Um, that making goals is, is just, if not more important than the actual scoring, scoring the goal. And I also tell them you've got to give managers and coaches what they want at that time. And when I came through at Portsmouth, I was just all action, running in the channels, running around. It was sort of that physicality off of the ball, running, running, putting pressure on people, making things happen that sort of got my breakthrough. It wasn't until I was comfortable in the championship at Luton that year I realised that Steve Howard was was a typical old school number nine. Like, I think at one point in one season he'd scored fifteen goals by November, and they were all headers. 
it was unheard of. Like you didn't, you didn't even know what footed he was because he just headed everything. I'd come short, I'd run in behind, I'd go to the byline, I'd cut it back, I'd hang it up, and he'd just always be there. And he's doing what he's doing. So it was really nice for me to get recognised, especially by the Luton News, in terms of they started promoting how many assists people got because I was real high. I think I was around twenty, if not more, the the the, the, the year we went up. Yeah, well, in your third season, you got 12 goals in 26 games. Your Luton spell as a whole, why did it go so well? Um, it was just a good fit. I remember speaking to Courtney Pitt, who was a left winger at Portsmouth. We'd been on loan at Luton the year before. Um, and he was going to go back there. Uh, and, and Sunderland came in for me for a, for a three-month loan, but said I was like going to be third-choice striker. Um, and I was like going on loan to sit on the bench. I don't fancy it, even if it's the champ. And, you know, Sunderland, great, great club. But Luton, I've spoken to Mick Harford um, and he'd seen me score a hat-trick for Colchester the year before and, and he was so complimentary. And it, it just clicked. And when I met Mike Newell and, and, and the guys, I just thought like, I reckon we've got a chance here. I didn't think we'd go and get 98 points and win League One. That was ridiculous. And it just fitted. It fitted so well. And Mike Newell, to be fair to him, he managed, when we lost players, he managed to replace them. Like Curtis Davis went and Leon Barnett slotted straight in. Um, we lost Howie, but he'd signed Warren Feeney, um, who'd done the target man job. Um, we probably lost a few goals because of that. But it just it just sort of kept rolling. And, and then the troubles started happening at Luton. The financial troubles had sort of filtered down. Uh, the manager was at, sort of at war with the chairman a little bit. A lot of stuff happened. I think if you remember like the... The agents thing came out. There was a bit of a dark cloud over, like people had been paid. And all this kind of stuff was really bringing the club down. And uh, the manager was brilliant with me. He just said to me, look, keep scoring because we're going to sell you in January. And like, that's not really the way you should be running a team. But he was like, he knew what was coming. It was impending doom. And it's history what happened mm. to Luton. They had three relegations and, and had the deductions. And then it, was, it went to pot. And he was quite honest with me saying, look, you're playing every week. You're scoring. Just keep doing it. And you'll have a pick of a club in the, in the January window. And the club you went to was Birmingham in January 2007 for £3 million, which was a lot of money at the time. Um, but you were only there for six months before you were sent out on loan to QPR. So why did that move not work out? Uh, many things. The January moves are very, very tough. Uh, they were eight points clear at the top of the league. Didn't really look like they needed a striker. I mean, Nicholas Bentner... Mikel Forsell, Cameron Jerome, DJ Campbell, Gary McSheffrey. They didn't need a striker. Nick ben Nicholas Bender had got injured and they said he was out for four months. He was only 18, but he was brilliant. Um, I knew Gary McSheffrey, Neil Dans. I had a, basically West Brom had put a bid in. I wanted to go to West Brom um, because of Tony Mowbray. We knew him, the way he plays football. And we thought they had half a chance of getting up that year. But... Um, I'd scored three in two. I'd scored a double and then a, and then a, another goal of, uh, against uh, Birmingham. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's no secret in the fact that I'd, I'd chosen West Brom, but they didn't get the fee agreed. If you look at it, there's probably a bit of Steve Bruce probably signed me so someone else couldn't sign me because I played games. I, I, it, it was like after the first few games, he didn't want to play me because Nicholas Bender miraculously recovered from this ankle injury even though he was strapping himself up to play games and was was a bit off the pace. It sort of, it quickly turned round. I was playing right midfield, left midfield. Yeah. 
he was playing me, but I was play, he was playing me out of position. And then it was sort of, oh, you've only scored one goal. Well, I was getting man in the match. I've got six man in the matches from, from, I think, seven home games for that season. And we went up. But the writing was on the wall, really. I didn't get on with Steve Bruce straight away. Soon as I, I met him, he had no knowledge of, of my career. Um, and fair play to him. He's, he's spent most of his career playing and managing in the Premier League. So... But if I'm signing a player for three million pound, I need to know how he plays the game and and what position he plays. I remember the first press conference. He said, "Oh, there's there's 16 games left. If he scores another 10 or 11, he's done his job." And I thought, "Has he signed Robbie Fowler or Andy Cole or has he signed?" Like, as he looked, I'm a one in four, one in five man goals because of that purple patch. He's looked at the top scorers in the league and probably gone, "We'll have him." We sort of had a conversation, a few conversations. We were miles off. Like he was, he did, yeah. He, it was laughable some of the stuff he was saying like likening me to certain players that I've I've never played like in my career so it was um, wow yeah he, he said like on your day you can be like Cameron Jerome and I was like Cameron Jerome is big strong and quick runs in behind and like you know I don't that's not me at all I don't, don't you just don't everyone laughs you just don't play like each other at all do you regret the move at all? I don't regret the move because like I say Luton were going down. He, I left when we were like 16th or 17th. They didn't get, after I left, I think they got another two points that season. And that's nothing to do with me because we were losing games while I was scoring. I don't regret it because I had every opportunity. The, the only thing I maybe regret is I was really fit that summer and I didn't get a chance. I was on the bench in the Prem, I think three times because it was, it's a sort of like a quiz question. I've been, which player has been promoted three times to the Premier League but never kicked the ball in the Premier League? And it's me. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I'll take that one. <laughs> Unless I make a late run now, I'm probably never going to do it. But... Do you hold any resentment towards Steve Bruce over how the move went? Um, no. Listen, we at the time, I probably did um, for a little while. Uh, and he's not my cup of tea the, the, like, as, a, as, a, as a person, as a manager, he's not my cup of tea at all. But I don't hold resentment now because he was doing what he thought was best for Birmingham and, and for himself. Um, and, and that's fair enough. He was a manager. Uh, I would have liked to have had the opportunity. And I think my personality against his, that personality clash probably cost me maybe 20, 30 minutes in the Prem to see what I could do. Um, so maybe like look back at... Um, and say I maybe could have done it a little bit differently, but I was more than happy to go and play for, for QPR. Um, they were second to bottom in the league when I joined, and I think we went on a four or five game unbeaten run, and, and we took them out of the relegation. And that was, that was brilliant because my relationship with the QPR fans was built around that loan spell. Me coming in when they were... I turned down two or three big clubs in the championship to sign for QPR um, because, again, it felt right. Yeah. Well, you went to QPR on loan and it seemed to get your career back on track for a few months at least until your injury when you fractured your leg in a training session and that kept you out of action for a year. What happened there? What do you want, the truth or the the, the whole truth? Um, Truth, please. uh, Basically, what happened, this is what happened. We'd signed a goalkeeper who was American called Matthew Pickens. He'd signed on a six-month deal and he, he was all right. He was a nice, nice enough guy. Um, didn't have a lot to do with him because he wasn't, he wasn't, he didn't play. He was sort of a third choice keeper, whatever. I think we was having a, it was an open day training. There was kids there and everything. Um, like a, I don't know, junior members club or something were watching training and 
we'd had a training session. We were doing a game at the end and he wasn't having a great game, uh, great day, the keeper. Someone had hit a shot and he'd fumbled it and the boys were onto him, like the banter and that. And then someone else, he dropped the ball and I sort of nudged him into the net to pretend it was a goal. And like, I don't think he was happy with that. So he like threw a ball at me or kicked the ball at me or whatever. Two minutes later, I've gone through 1v1 and and I've gone to, I was going to dink, dink him, but in the last minute, I decided to smash it. And I smashed it right in his face and 100% it wasn't meant. But I could see he was raging because he, he might have thought it was meant. So then, yeah, five minutes later or two minutes later, the ball is exactly the same being put through. But I did dink him this time. As, as I've dinked him, I'm looking to the floor. I've dinked him on my right foot. My left foot's planted. He's decided to, to two-foot me, but he's with his knees. And he's like a, he's a big boy. He's a keeper. Yeah, as I looked up, I couldn't move my leg. And yeah, his knees just, both his knees hit my, just underneath my knee on the outside, but where my leg was planted, it was just an almighty snap. Um, one, one of the boys said he thought I was wearing shin pads. Another boy thought it was like a boot on boot. It was like a clap. I heard it and I just, I sort of flipped and landed on my back and was just like, wow, I've got this pain in my back. But he's standing over me, giving me the Roy Keane, like the shouting shit at me, like, don't take the piss, rah, rah. And I'm like, you've broke my leg. And then he's like, shouting still, but realising, I'm like, I didn't scream on that. I'm like, you've, you've broke my leg. So then he realises, and he's trying to pick me up sort of thing, but then he realises and walks off. And then a couple of the boys come over. Remember it clearly, because Gareth Ainsworth is a qualified physio. So he's run over. Guys were just like, listen, don't move. And I was like, I can't move. I'm just here. So then all the boys come over and the physios and that. And it was really, the atmosphere was really bad because there was like mums with their kids watching. And then obviously this is big. Everyone's run over. And then the physios come out with a frack pad and all that. Because they knew, basically, they knew by looking at it what, what had happened. Um, I went straight to the private hospital in London and, and sort of had the scans and I ended up having the operation that night. But because I wasn't in a lot of pain, but I was like like crunched up in the back of this Range Rover Sport, one of the lads, Damien Delaney, had just got it brand new, like this white one. Imagine this, you've got a championship um, car park, a championship training ground. There's probably 75% four by fours in it, X5s, Ranges. They've gone up there and gone, listen, we need to, we need to borrow a Range Rover to get him in the, um, in, to get into the hospital. Who's got, who's got a Range Rover? Everyone's give it like, no, fuck, fuck that. No. The, the physio's got to drive their car. And I'm like, I'm, they told me the story after. So I'm um, Damien Delaney, bless him. Lovely guy, Damo, has gone, um, has gone, he's got this brand new Overfinch white range with black wheels. And he's gone, yeah, yeah, I've just picked up my range. He goes, yeah, take it, take it. And the physio's like nervous driving it because it's brand new. We get to the Princess Grace Hospital in, um, in London and he scrapes the wheels against the curb. You know how they hired that? No. <laughs> He's more worried about scraping the wheels than he is my leg. I'm like, what about that? I've had this like rigmarole of getting to the hospital in the back of this Range Rover Sport. It was bizarre. So we've got in and had the operation done at night. I had a uh, titanium pin put in there. I didn't have a plaster cast. And um, we were trying like, because I've never been injured, we were trying everything and our physio at QPR had been um, in c direct conversation with the Liverpool doctors because they'd had bone healing system, which was a little machine that you put on three times a day, stimulates bone growth. Then we were just copying their um, their structure 
and they, they, they did this boy that had, uh, he played after 91 days of a double fracture. So I was like, fuck it, let's go for the record. Let's go for 90 days. So I'm hammering it three sessions a day. Anyway, got to about, got to three months and I played in a game against, um, uh, friendly against Fulham because we were just taking care by that point. We were like, records, we're not going to worry about that. Let's get right. And uh, in the game, I just, uh, I just couldn't, I just couldn't get involved. Didn't say anything for maybe it's just because I've been injured. But the next couple of days in training, we were doing a passing drill, and every time it touched my left toe, like to control it, I could feel, I could feel my the bone like moving, like, the, I, and in my head, I'm thinking, you've you've lost your mind because I've never been injured before, but you're you, you're thinking something's there anyway. I broke down like physically and I, so I, I broke down, I started crying. I went through in Dowie and I was like, something wrong with my leg. He's like, yeah, you broke it. I was like, no, 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 there's something wrong now. <laughs> and he was like, oh, you better go in anyway. Like, I was in tears walking off the pitch and I knew something wasn't right. Anyway, we went for some more in-depth scans, which were CT scans, which went inside the bone and there was no bone inside the bone. There was no density. It was just a hollow bone. So it, the bone had closed up on the outside but there was actually no calcium or like the no, there was no bone. It was a hollow bone. So um, seeing it on the, and him showing me on the scan was like, I couldn't believe it. Um, so then, yeah, the, the, the thing he said was you need to, um, we have to go back to the start, you know, real, real tough time because people were looking for someone to blame. And I was, I was still like, one of our best players, if not, I was up there and they couldn't wait for me to get back. And it's sort of, I was the most upset person about it, but it was like other people are blaming me or blaming the surgeon or blaming the physio. And I was like, number one, going back to your original point was, I woke up from the operation and they'd gone on Sky Sports saying it's a freak training ground accident. So I already psychologically was like, they're telling a lie. like, And because I was well thought of at the club, they asked me to not say anything. So I never really did. Fast forward a couple of years, I ended up claiming compensation, injury compensation from the club off the insurance because, because I can and because it was they were liable. The player was liable. They promoted that as me suing my own club. So that really took it to the depths of like every fan hating me. And it just brought so much trouble for the next two, three years of my career and my life, which really and truly you can go back to that day and say it all started there and so many bad decisions were made by people um i probably played 70 games after that up until the age of 31 when i stopped playing professionally and it's all a direct impact of of, of, of what happened and it, that it, it's some real hard bits to take in it um but you sort of you sort of have to take it because it's, it's happened have you spoken to that goalkeeper since sorry i've completely forgot his name matt pickens yeah um, well, no, because the initial feeling towards him was, was, was resentment from everyone. And, you know, like the manager didn't even, the manager was an Italian guy called Luigi Tacanio, ne Neapolitan. He, he like, he didn't speak English. He just wouldn't even look at him, wouldn't look at the guy. Everyone knew what it was, but because the club had put up this smokescreen, everyone had to sort of adhere to that. Even the players, my friends, and they were like, can't believe we like we're having to say it's an accident. Like, but I didn't speak to him again. Uh, he was desperate to come and see me in hospital, and the boys convinced me that the captain, a few of the senior players, and my my missus at the time, they they convinced me to let him come and see me. 
he came in and started crying. In like, my, I think my leg was attached to the ceiling, like to stop <laughs> to stop the thing, like attached to the ceiling, like. And he'd come in, and he started crying, and I was like, oh, I'm not sure I can take this. You like seriously, mate? Like he was just he was really upset and he was really sorry, but. I just didn't have no time for it. I really didn't. And he was like, oh, the redness came down. I said, look, I'll have one crumb of respect for you if you never lie about it and just say that you, you've done it and you have to take responsibility for, you've nearly, you've potentially ruined my career and like, you know, like you've got to take that. He was like, yeah, I will hold my hands up. The redness came down. I'm so sorry. I've never reacted like that. I don't know why it came down like that. And I said, look, that's the only bit of respect I'll have for you is that you you stay with the truth because we all have to stay with the truth. Like, but when it got to the um, when it got to the stage of in the in the compensation claim, his statement he wasn't at the club anymore. But his statement was, I didn't mean to do anything. I slid out. Um, it was a normal tackle, and it's just unfortunate he got injured. So. It was two years later, which I really resented him even more because I was like, and there's a funny story, well, it's not funny. I was like, I don't have to speak to this guy ever again and see him as long as he doesn't get injured. Well, four days after my operation, I was in getting a rub and my leg was the color of a rainbow. Like, it was horrific. He hurt his shoulder and he's, he's got a shoulder injury. He's on the bed next to me, like getting treatment as I'm getting a rub. And I'm like staring at the wall thinking, this this can't get any worse. Like the guy's in the treatment room for four days, and I'm hobbling about like with no leg. It was it was it was just bizarre the way it happened. But yeah, I, I've learned even from the compensation claim, which we settled out of court. I've learned to let it go, but it's, it's still a tough one to take, definitely. It's a little-known fact that when Justin and I record these shows, nine times out of ten, we're wearing a classic football shirt from years gone by. And where do we get them from? Classicfootballshirts.co.uk In fact, as I record this, I'm wearing my PSG shirt with Thiago Silva on the back. Alternatively, I could have worn my Juventus shirt, Dortmund shirt, Blackburn shirt. I could go on. We're big fans of classic football shirts here because they offer you classic football shirts at a great price. And it's not just shirts either. Oh no, dear listener. There's also training wear, tracksuits, shorts, socks, you name it. And I can guarantee they'll have something for your club. So head on over to classicfootballshirts.co.uk or visit them in store in either London or Manchester. I know you briefly touched on it a second ago, but how did it affect you mentally being out for so long? Um, well, for me personally, for everyone in football, any sport, elite or not, if you're injured, it's the most frustrating thing that you could ever go through. Um, I'm not sure everyone understands that. People go to work every day, say they work in an office, and they use their fingers. If they break their hands they'd be buzzing for some time off paid because they broke their hands and they don't have to type on a computer. If you're ta- if the thing taken away is playing football, playing tennis, rugby, anything like that, there's so much frustration um, and so much like pain and, and depending on how it happened, you know, guys like Jack Wilshere that have gone over and beyond like, like putting their body on the line to play the game they love. 
and then get a bad reputation as an injury prone, like sick note, it's it's horrible to to actually point that stick at like pe beat people with that stick. But it, we have to understand that it happens. And for me, it was the it's the worst thing at the worst time because I was so comfortable playing Saturday, Tuesday in the most unforgiving league you can. I was I played so many games. I played 290 games by the time I was 25. I was built to play Saturday, Tuesday, and I loved it. When it was taken away from me, I didn't have a clue. I didn't, like, I struggled in the first rehab. I started getting physical symptoms of um, anxiety. Like my, my hands would be sweaty, my leg would tap, and I'd, I'd get heart palpitations started doing stuff at an incredibly fast rate, like driving, <laughs> um, like going to the toilet, like I was doing stuff at like 100 miles an hour. Didn't understand it. So I had to see the club GP um, and I got I got put on the mild, sort of mild antidepressants. And the line was like, oh, you're depr you, your anxiety, panic, and, and there's like a there's depression. He said, but you know why you're depressed because you've got no football. So it sort of made sense. If someone gives you the reason why you're depressed, you think as soon as football comes back, I'm all right. So I took these tablets for sort of six, four, five, six weeks. Didn't feel great on the tablets and thought the rehab's going okay. I thought I can, I can, I can check out some other stuff. So started like really concentrating on the rehab, really concentrating on getting back, but knew that I recognised that I'd gone through these 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 thoughts and and the way this my brain was working so actively with me being physically inactive very tough but um for as soon as i get back playing training proper i'll be all right it was never the same the way i was from the whole of my childhood teenage years up until that 25 it sort of was in sync like i i talk a lot i talk fast i run a lot i i play i train if you said to me do you want to play five side tonight as long as i could get there i'll come and play and i've been like that since since, since i was three years old so it didn't quite work after that because now I have to go and see the physio. I have to take care of my leg. I have to go and do gym sessions, like weight sessions on my leg. There's an imbalance like to learn to run again. There's an imbalance from that point and then the question marks are in your head. Am I as good? Like, Am I as brave? Am I going to get back to that? So alongside that, the political side of football, the business side of football really started stabbing me at QPR from every angle. The owner of the club, the chairman, certain managers, players, fans, like it really, it, it really changed it for me. There was a, there was sort of like, I was idolised. I got my leg broken by another player in training, but in a year's time, well, I think I played... I started playing for Jim McGilton and I played five or six games. We were unbeaten. We we're playing brilliant. And I was, I was keeping a Delta wrapped out of the team. Then we lost 2-0 to Swansea. I was the only player dropped. You, you know, like, flipping out. And then the owner, we'd had some issues because of the rehabs and because I refused to go to France to have the, um, the operation done because he blamed the surgeon. The surgeon's the best surgeon in London, but he wanted me to go to France. So... There was a standoff. I decided to have it done in London. But it leaves a bad taste in the mouth and then that psychologically weighs on you. Then relationships break down within the club and stuff like that. And uh, the player is normally the least blame is on the player. 
you know, like, like I said, Jack Wilshire, you can speak to so many players that have gone through it and, oh, he's earning 50 grand, 100 grand, it's his fault. He's not training hard enough, he's not doing this, he's not doing that. Very, very rarely do you hear the truth at the right time. You know, like I haven't got into this much detail with many people ever, and especially not on something that's going to be in the public domain, but I don't mind doing it now because of where I'm at in, in life. But it's so hard to tell people the truth at that time because they're being told a different truth, which is, you know, that, you know, like I'm being called a greedy mercenary that's suing his own club in the, in the evening standard. Well, I'm banned from reserve games, so I can't even let my football do the talking. So if I go and do a piece in the evening standard, I just look like a, a prick because I'm, I'm not even in the reserve team. And then I'm talking about the club. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? You can't do it. So um, very tough. And, even without all that politics, being injured and being not allowed to do what the thing you love and the thing that's your job is the most frustrating thing in the world. After everything that happens, what's your relationship like with Neil Warnock? I know he told you you have no future at the club and at the time you accused him of freezing you out. So what's your relationship with him? I have no, I have no relationship with him um, and I, know, I never will. Um, I know... Yeah, talk about like the 50-50s or the Marmite people in football. Like, yeah, fair play. Whoever's got a good opinion of, of Neil Warnock, whoever whoever likes him, all that kind of stuff, it's completely up to them. We'd never try and change people's opinion. But no, me and him will never have a relationship. And, and the truth from my side is that he treated me really, really badly. He, he, he might say something differently. But, you know, when, when you're being made to train with like the under-14s in front of people... Um, banned from reserve games, you know, like messing around with loan deals, uh, just so many things happened, um, you know, like, and there was absolutely no need for it, no need for it whatsoever. It all comes down to greed. Um, and, and yeah, like, for what, what Neil, for, for the good that Neil Warnock's done in his career, getting promotions and stuff like that, and um, looking after certain players, get, taking them to different clubs, and, and all the all the fans he's got, and all the passion people like to to look at the passion he's got and everything. Yeah, that's fair play. But um, if I heard how he treated me about someone else, I'd be like, yeah, not not for me that guy. So it's easy for me to say it, but you know, there's there's some people close to me that that witnessed it, that, that know exactly how I was treated. And I'm, listen, I'm no angel and I've never said I was. I'm, I'm never going to paint a story that something is always someone's fault and not the other person. Um, not at all, because I reacted badly to, to certain things. But trying to get me banned from the training ground, trying to make me stay at home with 19 months left on my contract is basically like diminishing your responsibility because your responsibility is to get every player in your team, your squad, as fit as they can be so then they can progress either in your club or somewhere else. Um, I was being told different times for training. They were, they were training at two o'clock and I was coming in at 10 and no one was allowed to tell me what time training is. You know, like, it was just, it's just so many things that, that didn't need to be done that were being done. And, uh, it was shadowed by them getting promoted. So again, I couldn't, I could, I had, I had no, I had no platform to speak to anyone. I went to when I was struggling. When I was, I've already touched on the, the depression, the, the anxiety side of things. Oh, I um, probably from 2010 when I was told that I was going to get a pay up 
And then they never offered me the pay up because they found out I was signing for Blackpool in the Prem. So they scuppered that move, didn't offer me the pay up, tried to make me leave with absolutely nothing to go and sign a one-year deal at Blackpool on like two grand a week when I was on 17 grand a week at QPR. Do you know, like, they made things impossible for me to even leave. Um, and they try and say they didn't, but the history is history. Um, I was ejected from the ground by the security when they won the league from the tunnel in front of my, the players and the players' wives. Literally thrown out with a year left on my contract. Um, that's a fact. No one will hide from that. Um, and yeah, like, I was hung out to dry in the press. I had fans, like, attack me verbally and one tried to attack me physically. Yet, like, I was walking down South Africa Road with my six-year-old son from a game about 10 minutes before the end because it wasn't a good place for me to be, Loftus Road, because if fans saw me, they would abuse me. Um, so I used to leave early because I had to be at the game. So I left early with my son and uh, walked past the Springbok pub and I heard a couple of murmurs like, you greedy this, you fat this, all this kind of stuff. I looked round and just saw a pint glass flying across the road. It smashed the wall probably about two yards from me. Um, and obviously I had my son with me. So I was like, I looked over and just thought, this is like, this is not like, what is this? I said, like, who's thrown the, who's thrown the glass? All looking at me like, you know, typical Aquascoot and Burberry, Stone Island mob were like, fuck off you this. And I'm like, how, where, how have we got to this? I was like, this is my son, do you know what I mean? And then walked off and I didn't go to a game after that unless I was, you know, straight in into the player's box and, and stuff like that. So when things like that are happening and, and people know about it, you know, like it completely changes it for me. And uh, yeah, they, they didn't help me. I, I made the mistake probably in the last year of going to Neil Warnock and telling him that I was really struggling with the situation, my mental health was really low and I, I was dependent on, on on drinking alcohol, really. I was, you know, but by that point, some of the players would be like, oh, Viney's an alcoholic and then laugh about it. Not like someone needs to help him. Like They, they, they did nothing, nothing to help me um, and they just wanted me out of the way. And obviously it was, like I say, um, smokescreen by a, a promotion to the Premier League. So, you know, they can get away with it, you know, and like, I've got no animosity towards QPR as a club whatsoever. No animosity to any fan. Maybe the one that threw the pint glass, but I wouldn't call him a fan anyway. But I've got no ill feeling towards the club. I love the club. I always, always liked the club before I signed and I will always like the club. Certain individuals working at the club at the time um, and certain people employed by the club at the time, I'm never going to have a relationship with. But that shouldn't detach from the fact that it's still a club I, I hold close to my heart. Wow. Well, um, from that point, you went to Scotland for a bit and then for the last six years, you've been playing non-league uh, and you were at Hemel Hempstead as a player coach. But as you told me just before we start recording, that's not actually happening now any anymore. Uh, so what is the future for Raven Vine? Yeah, I played up in Scotland, just got the career sort of going again at 31 and that sort of seemed to be a bit of a false dawn because I was obviously, there was a lot of stuff that had happened that... Um, that had, that had affected me. So, yeah, I decided to stop playing at 31 and I've in and out of the non-league stuff. But this year, with the start of the lockdown, just decided to get really, really fit and, and try and make a comeback as, as high as I can play. So, that's been the that's been the plan and it's gone really well. I played in a trial game for Grimsby, played really well. 
Ollie maybe didn't see it like that or I think the line was, let's be realistic, you're 38 in two weeks. So I think the number, the age went before me in terms of that, which is a bit disappointing because I know Ollie, but that's that's football, that's the business. Signed at, um, at Hemel, wanted to play. I think the, the sort of manager saw it more of as a coaching role, but I made it quite clear I wanted to play. Um, and they haven't started off great, but yeah, I was just sort of frustrated that I haven't been given a chance there. Because like I say, I'm... I am really fit, but people need to see that and people need to verify that by me being 38 years old. But um, So I've sort of left there and just just sifting through. Um, I've still got a massive appetite to play and to coach and to help people and to make sure. So I'm starting a foundation dealing with um, mental health in football and in sport, um, looking to, to, to help players of all ages, of all standards, everything. And we sort of going to develop it into sport in general but use football as our as our catalyst and um yeah just keep going like i've got a philosophy of how you should be in football and how you should treat people and that, that's what i sort of want the message i want to spread so um that's that's where we're at really so if you had to briefly sum up your career how would you sum it up roller coaster of everything <laughs> of emotions of ups and downs of you know success i mean like I said, I've had I've had a few promotions and I've played in winning teams more a lot. I mean, I played for Hibs. I left there in January and they got relegated, but that would be the first relegation on my CV. And the last few months with Morton and they got relegated, so they're they're probably like I'm not taking them as relegation because I wasn't actually fully involved for both squads. So I like to say there's a blemish-free record of no relegations. It's just um, I'm a winner. I'm a competitive person and a winner. So. My the teams I've played for normally win games, and if we if we don't, um, I normally look for the exit door. So yeah, just a just a like a roller coaster of, of everything. But I'm I'm proud of my career, and I'm proud of the level I played at. But you know, I, I do think there was something left. And finally, Rowan, you're still keeping track of Luton's results. What have you made of the job that Nathan Jones has done so far this season? Massively impressed. Um, I'm massively impressed with with Nathan Jones and, and the Luton squad. I was gutted when he left, um, but he saw an opportunity um, at Stoke, which you cannot blame him for. Um, massive, massive task for him to come back. A little bit of his tail between his legs. Um, and I know the fans are unforgiving at, at Kenilworth Road, um, but he's last season staying up. There's, 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 there's something special about Kenilworth Road and Luton Town. They, they, when their backs against the wall, they produce results like, like no other club, and they've started off on fire. And yeah, it's brilliant. I love it. Love to see because I'm really close with a few of the players. I'm really close with Mick Harford, um, and even some of the, you know, some of the people that run the club as well. So Gary Sweet, they're, they're, they're all, they're all really passionate about Luton Town, and I just think it's excellent. I'd love to see them get in the Premier League. And i tell you what, the way he's going, it wouldn't surprise me if he got there eventually. No. This has been the Second Tier Podcast. We've been joined today by Rowan Vine. Thank you for your time today, Rowan. No probs. We'll be back again on Thursday. Mm-hmm.